James. Um, as I was thinking about what Chris was going to say and commemorating uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, I went back to his letter from a Birmingham jail in which he decries the accusations coming against him because of his approach to nonviolent protest of racism. And it's just so easy for me, you know, to sort of think that I'm standing alongside him decrying the bad people out there. But of course, the letter begins, my dear fellow clergymen. And so that's where I have to start with what he's saying to me. So pray with me as we start the series of messages that uh, Beth alluded to. Jesus, we come to you needing to hear you speak to us. What do you have for me today? How would you shine your light in my heart? I pray in particular for this way of speaking to us called the Bible, that you would bring it to life for us. Shake off the cobwebs, release it from its rigidities, from its history of producing traumatization and harm, and bring it into a place of goodness and veneration for us. Amen. So as Beth mentioned, we're starting a series of messages called Reclaiming Scripture. The title for my uh, launch in this is Open Minds, Burning Hearts. Christianity is one of a handful of religions at the center of which is a text. Almost all human religions have holy writings that are important to that faith, telling us some of the history of the faith, core beliefs, how to get connected to God, get the good stuff. But the Abrahamic religions, so Islam, Judaism, Christianity, have a text at the center sort of in spades. Uh, you can see this in the way that uh, people of the Islamic faith venerate the Quran, in the way that in the history of Judaism, scribes, those who, <laughs> they weren't making meaning, they were just making another copy of the text, that they themselves were venerated, that this was one of the highest offices that you could hold in that tradition. And for Christianity, our text is certainly the most popular book ever in the world. One of the most published, though perhaps least actually read. <laughs> um, and amongst the many ways that that affects the practice of the faith, it also can produce difficulty. For human beings who want to assert control over other human beings, particularly in the context of faith, what you do is you identify where power resides and you take control of it. Hence, human beings who want to control others through Christianity, for example, take control of the text. I own the text, I understand the text, I control how the text is taught, I am the one who makes meaning of the text. And so it has become the case across the course of history that many of the uh, vile things that have been done in the name of Christianity, uh, the text has been brought to bear on that. The text has been complicit in producing lots of bad things across the course of human history. People in this room have experienced this personally. 
right, where you, in various ways, will have experienced harm brought into your life by people, but through the assistance of the text. So that some of us here, when we personally think of coming into contact with the text, with the Bible, opening it, reading it, feel something akin to the effects of trauma and traumatization. We feel anxious. We have to keep it at arm's length. So there are many people today would say that it's kind of a lost cause. Accessing the text, making meaning through the text, through what we've come to call the Bible, this collection of works, that, like, on its own, regardless of a history, is complicated enough, right? Having been written across many times, across centuries, by different people in different contexts, different parts of the world, most of which are completely unfamiliar to us, you add on to that the history of traumas and harms that have been perpetrated on humankind putatively through the text, and some people would say it's a lost cause. It's been irredeemably corrupted as a source of help, as a source of connecting with God and making meaning of the world. In spite of that, <clears throat> nonetheless, if you have attended here for even one Sunday, but certainly more, you will come to realize pretty quickly we still love the Bible. We preach from it every Sunday morning. <clears throat> I don't know if any have gone by in the nearly 20 years of our existence when we don't present to you something from up front here that we think will be helpful to you in knowing and understanding God, yourself, the plight of humankind, how we access the goodness that God offers. And so what we want to do beginning today and just for the next few weeks, for a total of four weeks, is illuminate that. How do we here at Sanctuary Church engage with the text, engage with the Bible? What are some of the struggles that we've had? You'll hear four different voices. Mine today, David's next week, then 80s, then Chris. And my guess is that by the end of it, you'll come away with a couple of things. The first is it'll be pretty clear there's not a unitary approach to engaging with the Bible here at Sanctuary Community Church. You'll hear from each of us personally, and the way that we each engage with the text is based in part on our story, on our history, on our personality, on our own journeys through Christianity to where we are here today. We don't preach a right way to do it. But my hope, too, is that in hearing these different voices, you'll find yourself somewhere in there. And if there are ways of the text having affected you personally that are negative, or if the history of how the text has played its role in Christianity that have caused you to keep it at arm's length, or if you just struggle to find inspiration from it, that maybe you will feel a little bit more open to the possibility of God speaking to you through it. Some of those rigidities will get broken away. Your minds will be open. Maybe your hearts will burn. That's our goal, is to reclaim Scripture, its goodness, to understand why it plays such a, such a central role in how we connect with God.
and how it leads us deeper into the heart of Jesus. So I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to begin with a story where we're going to take a walk with Jesus together. And we will see in this story how Jesus himself experiences help from the text and how he then tries to bring that to his friends, tries to bring them into his awareness of the text, how it's inspiring to him, how it's helpful in navigating a really complicated world. So the story comes to us on what probably is the best day in the life of Jesus. He's come into Passover week and it's gone pretty badly. People speak against him, vilify him, mock him, torture him, cruelly execute him, place him in a grave, and then three days later, (laughs) he opens his eyes and he's alive. Now, act one on day one of the life of the resurrected Jesus is to appear to some of his dearest friends, some women who have come to care for his body, to prepare it, to prepare it they think, <laughs> surprise, for burial. So he appears to them, in particular to one, Mary, says her name, Mary. She recognizes Jesus. She's excited. He's excited. He says, yeah, things are different now. Go tell your friends. Okay, so that's act one, day one of the resurrected life of Jesus. Our story begins a little later that day. Okay, so the second thing that Jesus does in his resurrected body. So this is from Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them, so two of his friends, his disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're walking seven miles, a good pace. I estimate about three hours, a three-hour walk. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, so discussing is kind of a tepid word for what they're actually doing. The word is more like debating, like an intense conversation, a really animated conversation. So while they were talking and debating, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you heatedly debating with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Jesus asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they they had indeed seen a vision of angels. Just a little note. (laughs) They're they're kind of holding at arm's length what these women have said, right? The women saw angels, not a vision of angels. But in the retelling, they saw a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Okay, so Jesus joins these friends of his, who he knows, they don't recognize him, they are kept from seeing who he is. <laughs> he says to them, what things? What's been going on lately? And they tell him this story, dramatic story, really intense. And they're trying to make sense of it. They're baffled, they're confused, they're perplexed, they're excited, they're bewildered. Now Jesus, if he, you know, had gone through good, like, sensitive listening training or reflective listening or empathic listening would have said, wow, that's an incredible story. How has that affected you? Right? It sounds like it's kind of turned you upside down. Tell me more. He would have drawn them out, listened empathetically. But that's just not Jesus. Right? <laughs> it says, then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart, so slow of heart, it's another great phrase. Slow is, is, the word is bradius, and heart is cardia. So bradycardia, for any of you who have, you know, medical knowledge of the heart or, or lingo of the heart, bradycardia, it's the word we use to describe a slow heartbeat. So, oh, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets for three hours, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. Now we'll go on. We'll, we'll continue on their walk in just a minute with them. But a couple of things to note. The first is just straightforwardly that Jesus believes. Jesus Believe. So his version of the text would have been pretty close to what we have as the Old Testament. There were still some writings in play where people were trying to decide whether they were authentic, whether they were inspired by God, whether we wanted to include them, to canonize them. But it would have been pretty much what we have as the Old Testament. And the first thing that Jesus declares to these friends of his is, yeah, I believe what's written there. And the belief of Jesus, he communicates to them, has a pretty important effect on him. Because of Jesus' belief, he knows the words, and it, it helps him. He, he sees these friends of his who are confused, they're baffled, they're perplexed, they're lost, they don't understand the meaning of any of it. Jesus says, oh, how foolish you are, because you don't believe the words. The implication of Jesus is if you believed, if you studied as I have, it would all make sense to you. It's not that the occurrences themselves would have been easy, but you would not be baffled. You would not be lost. You would be able to make meaning of what's going on. Jesus is saying the text and the words in the text and the words from the prophets have been profoundly helpful to me in understanding what's going on in my world right now, in making sense of this chaos. And he then goes on <laughs> to do this remarkable thing. Now, it's often helpful to me when I read these stories to think about what I might have done in similar circumstances, like what a normal person would do, as opposed to what Jesus does, right? So Jesus, bad week, people treat him really poorly, put him to death, and now he's back alive again, right? So I don't know. 
I might, first of all, throw a party with my friends. I am known to produce good food out of nothing. I might want to celebrate with those who are with me, and then after celebrating, I would seek out <laughs> those who made false accusations against me and put me to death and say, yeah, here I am, I'm back. Whatever you did before isn't going to work again, and we're going to fix that whole problem now. Right? But what does Jesus do? He does this strange, baffling thing. He spends three hours, his first extended act as a living, re resurrected being, and he teaches the scripture to his friends. He goes into the text like it makes it clear. He spent the whole walk going through Moses and the prophets illuminating what has been so helpful to, them, to him to his friends, right? So Jesus obviously has a high degree of respect for the text, veneration for the information in it, and a sense of its helpfulness in navigating a complicated, confusing world, right? So this is a thing that Jesus does. And I think this is representative. This isn't just a one-time event for these folks way back then. This is a way that Jesus continues to provide help to you and me. To engage with you and me as the living, resurrected Jesus in our lives, illuminating the text as a source for navigating a difficult world. It's also interesting how Jesus, <laughs> again, when he does this with his friends, he could have gone in any number of directions. In my Christian tradition, I might have expected from my past, from my youth, I might have expected Jesus to uh, like, talk about the grand principles, the sweeping ideas and themes in the text for Jesus to sort of lay out in a systematic way sin and the human plight and the nature of God. But Jesus doesn't do that at all. We were with uh, friends recently for dinner, they had a couple of young children and a, a little girl who was about three years old who was taking us through the family photo album, which was essentially, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, flip the page, that's me, that's me, that's me, right? <laughs> this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's saying, yeah, that was about me, yeah, that was about me, yeah, that was about me. He's personalizing the text. Right, he's finding himself. Then you might say, well, Jesus has a leg up on the rest of us in that regard. Because most of us as Christians would believe that a lot of what was written about in the Old Testament that had any forward-lookingness to, forward to it was about Jesus. But again, I think this is the invitation for you and me. We come to the text not so much to figure out these abstract concepts, but to find ourselves. The stories are not about things that happened long ago to those people. The stories are about how humans behave again and again and again and again and how you and I find ourselves in it. My dear fellow clergymen. So the story goes on and it appears to have been a good experience for Jesus' friends. It says, as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he were going on. But they, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, uh, because it's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in and stayed with them. 
When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> it's amazing. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us? When's the last time you said that? And it's interesting, they scurry back, Jesus disappears, they scurry back home to Jerusalem three hours, probably having another discussion. And that evening with their friends, Jesus appears to them again. And it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. Right, open minds, burning hearts. I think that's what Jesus is after for you and me as we engage with this text. It hasn't always been that way for me, right? Early in my experience of the Bible, I inhabited a tradition, whereas mostly the text was mostly had answers to questions. Like it had facts that you packaged into answers which you produced in response to questions. So you knew you were engaging, I knew I was engaging with the scripture right, if I got a red star, a yellow star, a gold star, a green star for getting the answer right and filled up my little gridded card with stars. That's how you engage with it. That's how you knew you were doing it right, if you got the right answer to the prompt question. I've also inhabited Christianity in a way in which I knew I was engaging with Scripture rightly if I avoided its scrutiny, right? If I engaged in a posture of meek submission to its authority and didn't get called out by its scrutiny, wasn't caught. This is completely different. I mean, you hear these disciples, these friends of Jesus, were not our hearts burning within us? It's not just a wonderful feeling. It's their sense of we were doing this right. Something real was happening. We were hearing Jesus talking to us through the scripture as it's meant to be communicated, as it's meant to be experienced as a witness to a life-giving experience of engaging with it. It's so scandalously subjective, right? What makes your heart burn? What makes my heart burn? You know? I think my first heart-burning experience occurred when I was in college. I was doing what most college students do with their free time, reading the Book of Romans. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And I was making my way through and, you know, like thinking I understood it. Who really understands it? I don't know if Paul did. Um, but I, I arrived, you know, wrestling and it had been fruitful and stuff. I arrive at Romans 8, which is kind of a, a culmination for everything that comes before. Paul's explication of the plight of humankind, the struggles that we all face, how God through Jesus helps us in those things. Romans 8, Paul just sort of takes the whole thing cosmic. The whole creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed because all of creation has been subject to frustration. And I don't know why, I just, even in recounting, I just felt like I was exploding inside. 
My heart was burning. My mind was open. I was seeing things differently than I had seen them before. Constraints were being blown off of God and what God does. And the whole cosmos is involved in God's thoughts and plans and actions. And so I went where I go when I'm feeling this way to the beach. We, we had a beach on the north end of our college campus, and it was nighttime, and I was glad that, you know, like nobody called the authorities or something as this strange person is wandering around under the stars. I lay down on the sand, looked at the stars, waves are lapping, and I just was like so invigorated and enlivened by this feeling. Because I knew it wasn't just an insight from God, it was an invitation into awareness and perception of the action of God in the world and in humankind and for me to participate in that. And truthfully, ever since, that's what I look for. Reading this passage has been helpful because even when I think about sharing something with you, what I look for, sort of without knowing it, is that experience of open mind, burning heart. Open mind, burning heart. That's when I know I've hit something. That God is relieving me of yet one more rigidity or constraint on my perception of the nature of God and how God loves us. That something in me is being shaken loose that needs to be shaken loose. That my mind is being expanded. So that's my offering to you this morning. I had an invitation into the possibility that the scripture can open your minds, cause your heart to burn with truth, with life, with love, with the closeness of God. So I want to take a moment just to pray, just to bring us into a space to let that be a little bit more of a possibility. The band can come forward um, as we begin to shift into the rest of the service. But I just want to pray... I don't know how many of us actually have this experience or even have this as a goal when we come to the text. God opened my mind, caused my heart to burn. So I just want to pray to allow that to be a little bit more of a possibility for us here. So if you want to get into the mode or the place of prayer, um, let me pray a blessing and an invitation over you. So Jesus... Um, Engaging with the scripture just on its own is not easy. Then many of us too come with a history that makes it harder. Sort of knowing the human history of roles that the text has played and our own personal history too. Where it's locked us into rigidities that we have worked all our lives to escape from or where it's been used to produce harm in our lives. But Jesus, you valued it. It saved you from foolishness. It helped you navigate the world. And you would stir that in us, I believe. So I just pray, Jesus, that you'd come to us and if there's a way that you could release us from rigidities, that keep your voice through the scripture silence, that you would do that. And that we as a community would find our way into open minds and burning hearts in the way that that can transform us.
Amen. So that's our invitation into this series of messages. We'll shift now in the service to communion and worship. We practice a welcoming form of communion here. So if you would like to connect with Jesus in this form, through this representation of his body and his blood, we invite you to do so, to come share with us. Any are welcome to share communion with us, with stations at the front, stations at the back. You can come by yourself or with friends or family. Uh, we also have people out in the foyer who'd be happy to pray with you, to bless you in any way um, that you would like during this part of the service. Uh, and we will continue then forward from there in awesome gospel musical worship together. So come as you're ready. <laughs>